This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. CanDo is navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Natasha Froze and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and James Heal. Well, James, in the news today, Boris Johnson is back and it's about his unredacted messages with the COVID inquiry. Could you just explain to listeners what's been going on in the lot over the weekend? Sure. So this is about the submission that the Cabinet Office was preparing to make to the independent COVID inquiry, which is chaired by Baroness Hallett. And while they were preparing the submission, um, a number of lawyers who were, Boris Johnson's lawyers were going through the messages that he had sent to and from his phone, found some messages which they, they, they found the diary entries which they thought were necessary to refer onward to the police because they were concerned about you know, criminal liability, about events that were going on during lockdown at Chequers. So these two, these were handed over to uh, Thames Valley Police, which is where Chequers is, is the area Chequers based in, and also the Met Police because they also concerned Downing Street as well. Um, and really, and this is sort of blown up into a row in which Boris Johnson's allies are accusing him of being a stitch up, being stitched up by the, the supposed blob of civil servants and sort of political enemies about those these submissions. They say that all the diary entries weren't actually breaking any of the restrictions at the time of COVID. Um, they question who was involved in this, whether it was ministerial sign off. And also whether, why wasn't he informed beforehand? Now, this is obviously being written up from the perspective of Boris Johnson, people like to get Boris. I think the more interesting element here is actually it's a kind of blob on blob, which is that you have, on the one hand, the legal establishment demanding the release of these messages about all Boris Johnson's information unredacted. And you also have the Cabinet Office blob, the establishment blob, if you will. So both sides um, have sort of an interest here. Baroness Hallett, who chaired the 7-7 inquiry, is going to have the full force of the law I'd imagine behind her. She's not going to want to back down on this. And she's demanded all those messages. She's extended the deadline from 4pm today until 4pm Thursday. Um, but also the cabinet office has an interest here because, you know, having seen what we saw with the Matt Hancock uh, released WhatsApps, one can only imagine what the WhatsApps to and from Boris Johnson, people like Simon Case, is going to look like as well. So they're resisting the disclosure of all of these, arguing that some information is relevant. Boris Johnson's allies have said that there's sort of national security elements here. So really, we've got another kind of 48 hours of this this sort of proxy war going on, um, which we're going to see more of, I imagine, in the coming months and, dare I say, years to come, which is about the COVID inquiry and what information is going to be released from government concerning the events of 2020 and 2021. And Fraser, this is very reminiscent of the same problem that you reported on with the lockdown files, where WhatsApp is being used as a mode of communication between ministers. What do you make of this story? Well, this, of course, reminds me of the value of doing the Lockdown Files project. I mean, there we had the unredacted files between Matt Hancock and pretty much everybody else he spoke to. And that was able to give the public a glimpse into the discussions that were taking place. Uh, now, at the time, there were lots of questions, to me, rather perplexing, asking, like, why a journalist like Isabel Oakeshott, who found the files, would want to make them public. Well, first of all, the job of journalists traditionally is to make public things that powerful people would rather was kept private. But the vast public interest here is that people can learn what was said behind closed doors, of the strength of the evidence or lack thereof used to um, deprive so many millions of people of their liberties, and also, importantly, to learn lessons for a second time around. Now, The Telegraph published them because they suspected there'd be exactly this sort of wrangle with the official inquiry. Like, first of all, it's moving at glacial pace. Sweden has finished its inquiry. We haven't even started ours. Secondly, there's a massive tug of war between the inquiry and the 
politicians who don't want to release them. And even when they do hand them over, we're told that they don't need to be published, heavily redacted uh, by the COVID inquiry. Um, only irrelevant information would be redacted. For, by the way, who's to say what's irrelevant? Some of the most revealing. I mean, I, I stand before you as one of the few people who has read every single one of the Matt Hancock lockdown files here. But it's like war and peace times two. And Matt Hancock is no uh, Tolstoy, I can assure you. But reading that, to me, what reads between the lines is the most important thing. You see how a group of people started off relatively normal, relatively um, cautious, thinking, hang on a minute, are we sure lockdown is the right thing to do? Maybe it won't actually achieve that much more. What about the side effects? And within a few weeks, they'd been completely radicalised into a small band of brothers who felt that they were united in being for lockdown and they were attacking anybody who was against lockdown or even questioning lockdown. So business ministers like Alok Sharma was, were attacked. Rishi Sunak was attacked. And we saw the way that, that civil servants were complicit and were um, like Simon Case uh, that, that somehow ended up running the civil servants, her service at the age of 42, was making jokes about people that they locked up coming off aircraft. The point is that those sort of thing matters, not just for kind of voyeurism. It matters because next time you're doing a pandemic response, you need to realise that the political psychology will be a bigger factor than the science. I think, just to say, I think it's worth perhaps looking at how much this COVID inquiry is going to cost. And sort of, we have had in recent years, ministers love to give over these big contentious issues rather than dealing them as politicians, dealing instead with these sort of independent inquiries. And there's, you know, interesting Taxpayers Alliance research came out a few years ago, which pointed out that, you know, three government departments spent a total of 300 million on this. This is going to sort of be dwarfed by this COVID inquiry. And I do think perhaps there needs to be at some point an inquiry into the inquiries, you know, some kind of royal commission looking at this because this is going to dominate Fraser for years to come. And of course, this is the whole device. Richie Sunak does not want this discussed before the next election. I mean, he actually emerges with quite a lot of credit, but the rest of his cabinet, it looks awful. So what do you do? You want to stop discussion. So the inquiry is intended not to reveal, but to stop people answering any questions that they can say, wait until the inquiry. There is simply no excuse for it to take so long. And my concern, Natasha, is that there's going to be a, um, a new pathogen coming along relatively soon, and we'll go back into the old apparatus. We've still got the failed SAGE network that's still in place. If the Tories are so terrified of what an inquiry would find, and the main mission of this inquiry is to basically go away and only report until pretty much everybody they write about is, is retired, um, then that loses the opportunity to get us ready for the next pathogen and to make sure it won't cause so much societal and economic harm and public health harm by another botched response. In terms of the culture in Westminster with, with the way they do work, I mean, I spent time working in Brussels before I got this job at The Spectator, and we were never allowed to communicate by anything apart from email because yeah. of exactly these sorts of issues that come up. It seems like there's a culture here that's much more informal, and I don't, I, I'm surprised that they haven't learned before that this isn't a, a way of communicating But they thought they were works. operating above all the rules. But when you read these WhatsApp files, you see this is a small group of men who had complete and utter power. Not Parliament, not the rest of the Cabinet were asking. Now, there's one fascinating exchange I saw when um, Ben Wallace was looped into the WhatsApp group. 
And he was like, hang on, what's this group? And he found out. And he was like, you guys are mad. I want nothing to do with this. And he, so, so he ejected immediately. But that was the correct response. But, but of course, government, the very notion of government by WhatsApp is inherently dangerous. And the other thing, you know, I, I could write a book about what I read there. I mean, that to me, it was so interesting to see the quality of the information they were going on. They weren't sharing proper um, scientific reports. They were sharing, like, stupid things they'd seen on Twitter and um, screen grabs of headlines. And this is what was driving the policy. Now, this is what the inquiry needs to find out. But, of course, you know, the Telegraph's lockdown files have already made that point. But you're quite right, Natasha, in saying that the very notion of governing anything by WhatsApp is inherently dangerous. I'm I'm from Kew, right? So I grew up uh, sort of marinating in the juices of the National Archives and uh, reading all these sort of uh, documents, uh, which I spent many happy hours doing in my teenage years. And I do think it's a shame when you read these documents, you can kind of see, for instance, the Thatcher papers, the marginalia, her mate, you can see her thought process from writing and jotting it down. And that is an invaluable record. And I think with the WhatsApps, I mean, you've seen things like sort of certain phones disappearing, etc. WhatsApps being deleted. And I do think that will be a loss of policymaking. And surely the whole point of this inquiry and sort of you know the reason we have proper government note keeping and record keeping is we can see where things went wrong and change them for better policy in the future and I think that's perhaps being lost and I think that understandably though maybe with the pandemic and all the big issues facing the British state we haven't considered this but at some point we're going to need to look at how uh, ministers keep records and actually call for a proper review of all of this kind of stuff because it's a loss to history and it's going to loss to policy making as well. But I do actually think the WhatsApps gives you an enhanced view of it because you can see decisions being made in real time. Now when you look at the document you were reading, James, in your t- teenage years. Uh, they are going to be very considered memos, aren't they? They're written by civil servants. They're very elegant English. You might get sort of Thatcher scribbling something in the sidelines if you're lucky, but you don't really get to catch the political reaction. Now, only in WhatsApp can you see the kind of arc of the political psyche changing. You can see the emotions stirred. You can see the way that tribalism works into politics. I actually think that WhatsApp is a richer resource than we've ever had before for understanding the recent history because it it adds the personalities and the psychological impact that we all know shape our politics and policies. But of course, that assumes that every uh, minister is going to do what Matt Hancock did and hands their phone over to uh, a journalist who then repeats them in full. You're right. I do think Isabel Oakeshott has done history a great service in making all of this on the public record. She said, actually, that she might consider giving the whole thing to a public library as well. So future scholars can... Because they'll they're never, in any drama, have you ever had in the human history have you ever had this sort of document which can show you every conversation as it happens the highs and the lows it's almost like it's pulling behind the curtains and getting to look look inside somebody's mind not even a, a diary is self-justification quite often written months afterwards so this really is a primary source of a caliber we've never had before Well, while all this is going on Rishi Sunak is on his other new health agenda which is to do with vaping And he's with Chris Whitty in Kent at a lab where they're testing the dangers of vaping. But Fraser, Rishi doesn't intend to go as far as banning vapes. Why is that? Uh, Because vapes are hugely important in getting people off cigarettes and saving lives. The trick is how you manage to make sure the vapes are used by ex-smokers and not taken for the first time like teenagers. I'm I'm the father of um, 13 and 15-year-old boys, and um, their, their friends are forever posting pictures of themselves vaping on Instagram and whatnot, and I'm really quite struck by it. I mean, I don't think they would picture do pictures of themselves smoking. So smoking has now become really sort of de classe. Um, kids just don't don't want to be seen with a cigarette in their mouths. But post being posing with a vape 
is something fashionable. Now, that's a problem. Um, I was um, struck, actually, at just how easy it is to buy these single-use vapes. When I was young, um, shops that sold single cigarettes individually, everybody knew they were selling them to kids. And so eventually you get done for that. But I think that single-use vapes are pretty much the same sort of thing. So the question is how to regulate it, how to stop the marketing. You don't want these things advertised as like blueberry pie, etc. Although the sweet flavours are attractive to ex-smokers, so you could, it would be stupid to ban the sweet flavours. So this would be a question of finding a regulatory regime that would stop people starting vapes, uh, but wouldn't... Um, impede the hugely important and life-saving trend of people giving up cigarettes and moving on to either vaping or these um, um, heat not burns. I just think it's really interesting how public health tends to around the world sort of mimic each other's trends. You, know, you see this, for instance, with West Streeting floating the idea of uh, potentially banning uh, smoke, uh, buying cigarettes after a certain age like they have done in New Zealand. But I do think on this issue of vaping, it's quite noticeable how um, America and Britain have taken such different tasks on, on vaping and the FDC has taken a very different view from how the health authorities over here... Australia's banned it, of course. Yeah, of course, completely. So I think Britain is a sort of an outlier on this, but I think that that can be a good thing. And you know, you see what, for instance, remember the, the COVID vaccination when obviously Britain did uh, double boosting, different from the rest of the world, and the rest of the world follows suit. I think there's perhaps an interesting to see how this this vaping experiment pans out. Do you, do you vape, Natasha? No. Do you? I don't know. <laughs> thank you, Fraser. Thank you, James, and thank you for listening. <laughs>